Hi, I'm Nick Warren, and welcome again to the iLearn podcast from First Quantum. On the 15th of April 1989, fans of Liverpool and Nottingham Forest travelled to Sheffield to watch their teams compete in an FA Cup match. Shortly before kick-off, in an attempt to ease overcrowding outside the stadium, exit gates were opened, leading to an influx of football fans into a very crowded stadium. In the ensuing crush, 96 Liverpool supporters died, and many more were injured. Paul Cork was at Hillsborough Stadium that day, and he survived. And in today's podcast, he tells us his story. Hi, First Quantum Leaders. My name is Paul Cork. I'm an author, speaker, coach, and I also own my own leadership consultancy, which is called Leadership Architecture. What I'm actually going to talk about is talk about how to control your mindset. Now, I've published a a number of books on mindset over the years, and the most recent one has been called Reframe Your Mindset, Redefine Your Success. And I've completed 30 years research into mindset, happiness, and what makes people successful. Now, my story, if you think about why I've actually wrote that book and why I've done the 30 years research, Well, if you go back 30 years, I was actually at the Hillsborough football disaster and tragedy. And as you might be aware that on that particular day, the 95 Liverpool supporters uh, died. And sadly, another one died a couple of months later, making it the 96. So very unfortunate to be at that disaster, but very, very lucky to be alive. Now, the story, it's quite a... A simple story, really. The, the reason that I think that I'm still alive is because I actually went there the year before. Liverpool were playing Nottingham Forest again in the FA Cup semi-final. And we had what was a wonderful weekend. Liverpool won and we got to the FA Cup final. But actually being at Hillsborough and getting an understanding of the ground is probably what saved my life in 89. And I remember on the day, um, it was a beautiful, beautiful sunny day that morning. We'd been out in Sheffield the night before. And we made our way to the ground early. Um, we'd had dinner, I can remember we'd had lunch, and then we, we made our way to the ground early. And when we got there, none of the pubs were open around the ground, and they, they were the previous the previous year. So the only option was to hang around or to actually get into the ground. So I know it must have been around about half two, maybe a little bit earlier, and we decided to, to head towards the ground. Now, what you noticed straight away when you got there is there was just a massive congestion of fans all being uh, basically swelled into the same area and it, it was just different the year before so we ended up in an actual crush outside the ground and i remember uh, being we were pinned next to this was me and my best mate we were pinned next to a police horse and um, you know if, if you imagine the size of a police horse there's no way you'd want to be right next to a police horse but the police horse couldn't move and I looked at my mate, my mate looked at me and said, just not going to get in here. And I said, look, let's just get under the police horse and see how, see how far we can get, you know, and keep, keep trying to get in. So we actually went under the police horse and within a couple of minutes, we were really, really fortunate to actually get to the turnstile and get into the ground. And the reason that I say it was very, very fortunate is because when you then got in, you automatically go towards the tunnel because that's what you saw to get into the ground. So we went into the tunnel and... Walked down the tunnel and you couldn't, it was that congested, you couldn't push in to get in. All we could see is a little bit of the pitch and I was standing on my tiptoes, only a young lad at the time. And 
you know, my mate said to me, he said, well, what do you want to do? We, we're not going to get in here. I wanted to be bang in the centre of the crowd. Um, I'd sat in the stands the year before, so I wanted to be in the centre. And in the end, I turned and looked at him and I said, you know what? I'm feeling a little bit hungover from last night. Why don't we go around the other side? Now, it's dead obvious that there's two sides, you know, t- to the main, the middle bit. You know, the, the pen was the, the middle pen and there's obviously a left and a right pen. So that might seem dead obvious, but not in the moment when you're trying to get into the ground. All you would have seen is you just would have seen that tunnel. Unfortunately, as we walked out of the tunnel, which which I call two minutes, it's two minutes to live philosophy for my life, is that when we walked out of that tunnel in those two minutes from where I was walking out to getting around to the other side, that's when the gate was opened and that's when all of the fans run in and ran down the tunnel. Now, what most people don't know is that more people actually died in the tunnel than actually died at the front fences. And if you saw the pictures of the front fences, it was horrific. But I believe in the tunnel, you know, it, it was just complete tragedy anyway, the whole thing, as you can imagine. So we were stood there and we watched it and we watched it for so long that you started to understand that people were dying. I remember getting lifted up into the stands and then watching it from there. And at some point we went, that's it, we, we, we've got to go, we've got to get out of here. This, this is just horrible to watch. So we left and I ended up walking up the road and eventually bumped into my dad. My dad was so relieved that I got there. Now, what you've got to appreciate is that for weeks after, you know, to be lucky to survive, but at 18 years old, I walked around in the days. It was just a complete haze. I was in shock. And the worst part of it is that when you survive a disaster like that, you feel guilty that you're alive and you have to live with that guilt. And it's really, really strange feeling, a really strange place to be, especially as a young lad. What I wanted to do is I wanted to make sense of the Hillsborough, a disaster for myself. And it took years. I couldn't watch it on TV. It took over 10 years before I could watch it. And every time it got mentioned at the match, it was just, you know, it's just a state changer. For a lot of people who are a lot worse off than me, you know, you always have to appreciate that at the end of the day, I was one of the lucky ones. So I have a massive belief in life that we have default settings and those default settings are set by, we're conditioned by every single experience in life. And so much so that we actually go on autopilot and we act without thinking at times. Now, for me, one of my default settings is I've got a natural fear of crowds. And that's quite obvious, isn't it? Being in a crush in the ground, you know, that the, the whole tragedy, and I've been in worse crushes at Wembley, believe it or not, but obviously they not resulted in anybody losing a life. And the thing with that default setting is that when I go to the game, I go to a concert or there's a big crowd, then it makes me feel automatically nervous. It's just an inbuilt fear that I've got that I have to manage. So that would be a negative default setting. But I have to make sense of the Hillsborough disaster. And to make sense of the Hillsborough disaster for me, what I actually viewed or started to massively believe which is quite obvious really is that life is a gift you know i was one of the lucky ones i wasn't one of the 96 so one of my positive default settings is i view life as a gift and we should make the most of that every day so i'm one of those people who's very positive optimistic and very grateful each day that i'm here and that i'm alive but i actually think that that's a brilliant default setting to have in life full stop anyway so what have I really learned from Hillsborough then to put things into perspective is that we do all have default settings. You know, we're conditioned by every single experience in life so much so that we do start to become either a victim of our circumstance or we can actually start to choose the programs that we run for our own life. 
So I, I view the mind as, uh, it's like computing, that's why I talk about default settings, is that if you can identify what those negative default settings are, what you'll find is that you've got self-limiting beliefs. And then what we can do is we can replace those self-limiting beliefs with empowering beliefs. And that is, to me, it's like running a positive program rather than running a negative one, but you've got to have and develop the self-awareness to be able to do that. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've done 30 years research into mindsets, what makes people successful and into happiness as well. And I think that the most successful people in the world, you know, if we talk about the likes of Muhammad Ali, the Roger Federer, the Tiger Woods, they fully understand the importance of mindsets and how it impacts what they do. It goes without saying, doesn't it? But what they do really understand is that it's important, firstly, to be able to see yourself successful. So, you know, Muhammad Ali used to say, I am the greatest, and he used to repeat it over and over again. So everybody knew, but more importantly, it was reinforcing how he saw himself. So, you know, one of the tips that I give to people is that, you know, if, if you want to be successful now and in the future, is to take time to write down what success looks for you. So in the next 12 months, what are you going to achieve? Write it down. You know, how are you going to be? Because that's just as important. So when you write that down, what you can actually do is you can create, if you want to do something practical, you can create a vision board. And with that vision board, you put lots of pictures up that represent what you're going to achieve in the next 12 months. So you know, if you want to go further into the future, you can do. But what that is, is and what the, the, the greatest actually know is that by seeing yourself successful, by continually visualizing yourself successful, put that vision board somewhere where you can see it, then it embeds it into the subconscious. And by embedding it into the subconscious, it attracts those positive things into your life. And obviously, you've got to take positive action. And another tip I, I give is, you know, it, it's about what you're going to achieve, but it's also about who you're going to be. So I talk about being the best version of yourself, and I'm, I'm a massive believer in demonstrating a level of integrity and respect. So, you know, simple things like manners, saying please and thank you is just so important in life. And the classic example I use is, is do you hold the, the door open for people? Because the best version of you will always hold and open that door to let other people go through. And that's just a very, very simple point of making that when you wake up in the morning, do you act in line with the best version of you? And a very simple technique that you can apply is, I call it playing from a 10. So the best version of me plays from a 10. It's 10 out of 10. Now, I know it can't be 10 out of 10 all the time, but when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to play from a 10 because I want to be the best version of me. Now, one day that I wake up, maybe I don't feel great. Maybe I'm not feeling as well as I normally do. So if I can't be a 10, then what I'll look to do is go, well, today... The best I can be is an eight, so I'll be the best eight I can possibly be. And as the day goes, if I'm in a meeting and the meeting's not going the way I wanted it to, or somebody upsets me, obviously that's about internal dialogue, which I'm going to get to in a moment. But it's actually thinking about, if I've dropped to five or a six, how could I get back to that seven or eight? Or how can I get straight back to that ten to be the best version of me? So I do think that's a great technique to help you take control of your mindset as well. And the third tip that I would give you on the basis of what I've been talking about is that your self-talk is so important. You know, I look at the Hillsborough disaster and directly afterwards and my own internal dialogue and, you know, not being able to control that initially at the time, but understanding over a period of time the importance of it. 
And I do think in life in general, you know, the person we probably talk to the worst in life is ourselves. We can be really hypercritical. So it's really thinking about your self-talk, thinking about the way that you talk to yourself, not being negative, not thinking I can't, thinking positive, thinking about what you can achieve, what you can do and what you will do. And I think just replacing your self-talk with positive language, with encouraging language and empowering language, when you talk to yourself, can have a massive difference in your life as well. So we can take control of our mindset. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of the I Learn podcast. There'll be a new speaker and a new episode out next week. But until then, thanks for listening and see you next time. (laughs) 